Uh, this morning, we are going to be in a letter of 2 John, so you can go ahead and turn there. Now, John, 2 John, is all the way near the back of your Bible. If, you, if you're newer to your Bible or if you haven't uh, opened to 2 John recently, it's located before Revelation and after uh, Hebrews. If you're Hebrews, Peter, you need to go a little bit further. Revelation, 3 John. It's conveniently situated right between 1 John and 3 John. <laughs> go figure. Since September, we've been journeying together verse by verse through John's letters. We finished 1 John last week, and we'll begin 2 John today. We'll also finish 2 John today. 2 John is the second shortest book of the Bible. We're going to look at the shortest book of the Bible next week. It's made up of only 245 words in the Greek. If you're thinking about memorizing a book of the Bible, this is a great candidate. You know that whole thing about like positive momentum? It's like, start with this book, you could have it memorized in a week or two, and you could move on to something else. Uh, it is the Word of God, and it is a joy to be able to open up together and read it. Now, the author of Second John has always been understood to be the same John as the one who wrote First John, who was also the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, who was also the same John who walked and ministered with Jesus during his time on earth, John the disciple, the beloved disciple. This John, who in this letter refers to himself as the elder, as we're going to see in a moment, He was an eyewitness to the historical reality of Jesus Christ, of Jesus come in the flesh. He had, as we saw in 1 John, he had heard, he had seen, he had touched and looked upon the reality of God in human form. It's it's incredible what what John got to walk through with Jesus. Now John, he was also the longest living disciple. He wrote this letter toward the end of the first century. So Jesus' earthly ministry was somewhere around AD 30, About 50 or 60 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, John is writing this letter. And John is writing to a church. Now, you're going to see in a moment that this letter is addressed to the elect lady and her children. Don't be confused by this. Over the last 2,000 years, almost all scholars have agreed that this is a particular church congregation that John's addressing. It's not unusual to refer to a church as her. The Bible does this repeatedly, talking about the church as the bride of Christ. So John addresses a congregation that he clearly, he had a close relationship to. It was a church that he administered to. This was the Ephesian church. Now, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey on the west coast. And it was at one time, it was this important commercial center and the capital of the Roman province of Asia. The history of this church is really one of a kind. It's remarkable. This is the same church that Paul started during his third missionary journey. He did that around 52 AD, and he stayed there for, for a few years. And in Acts, 28, and Acts 19, verse 20, the Bible tells us that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily there. Now, after Paul founded and pastored this church, it was eventually pastored by Timothy, Paul's disciple. And then finally, it was pastored by John, the disciple of Jesus. John came to this congregation and pastored it towards the end of his life. Now, given this legacy of leaders, Paul and John in particular being eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, you would think that everything would have been smooth sailing here. But as we saw in 1 John, that wasn't the case. John writes in in 1 John 2.19 of this group of people who have gone out from the church because they were not of the church. He's writing here about a church split that took place. And here you were thinking that church splits were only something for the modern church. Here we see a nasty church split happen during the days of the apostles. This kind of strife was without doubt wearying and discouraging to the church. 
Now, not only had this group gone out from the church, but they were also actively opposing the church and the message that the church proclaimed. Several false teachers had arisen within and around the church who were proclaiming a a Christian message, but not a Christian gospel. It contained some truth, but it went beyond the truth. The church was being threatened by this false message, and it was in danger because of it. So this church is left dealing with the fallout of a church split and facing the onslaught of false teaching. No doubt, it was a battered and a bruised people. Now John writes his first letter, 1 John, to encourage the church in what they believe, that they might have confidence in the faith they confess. And the first letter, now it was like a a circular letter. So this church that Paul planted in, in Ephesus there were several churches planted in that region over the years. And so 1 John is, is really a letter that was probably passed around among these churches. 2 John, however, it was probably included with 1 John when it first went out, and it was sent to a particular church, just one, one congregation that it was sent to. Now John sends it to this particular congregation, and he knows he's going to come to them very soon, but he's got something so important to write to them about that he must write and write now. So what does John have to say to this hurting church? What is his message that is so urgent, and what does it have to do with us today? Well, now we get to look at the book together and see what God has for us in this little letter that has been preserved for us over the last 2,000 years so that we might read it here together today. It is a joy and a privilege to be able to open God's Word. Would you actually stand with me as as I read from 2 John? We're going to stand just in in reverence for the Word of God. This is as if God is in this room addressing us now, because that's what He does through His Word. This is 2 John, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through the end, verse 13. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word and preserving your word so that we could open it this morning and pray that we would have hearts that are soft to be conformed to your word, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Lord, give me strength as I bring your word to this dear people, and may the Holy Spirit grant them to hear a better sermon than the one I'm about to preach. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated.
Now, in writing this letter, John has a very particular message to deliver. You may have picked it up right at the beginning. John writes because truth matters. Truth is essential. Truth is necessary in the life of a Christian, just like water is necessary in the life of a fish. Truth is the foundation for our life together. Now, the big idea that John commends to this church and that God commends to us this morning is this. Because truth is the God-given foundation for our life together, walk in it. Because truth is the God-given foundation for our life together, walk in it. Walk in truth. This is God's call to us through this passage. Now, we're going to walk through this passage in two sections. We're going to look at first, truth defined, and second, truth lived. So verses one through three, truth defined. Now, remember what I said about this church being worn out and beaten down. At the outset of his letter, John purposefully encourages this church with truth. He wants them to know and to live in light of what is really real. Their hope is not in their circumstances. It's not in how well or how poorly things are going for them. Their hope is in God-revealed, God-ordained, God-proclaimed truth. And this truth, we're going to look at it, is both a past reality, it's a present reality, and it's a future reality. Now John begins, he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now, I already mentioned that the lady and her children, this is, this is referring to a particular congregation, but notice the word that precedes lady. Right up front, moments in, John highlights who this church is. They are elect. The church is elect, chosen by God. Before the foundation of the world, God chose this people to be his bride, the elect lady. Before time began, before time began, God had in mind that this group of Christians would be an embassy of his kingdom in this world, the elect lady. Amidst the challenges that this church faces in the face of opposition, in the midst of the pain of division, John reminds them of truth, of what's really real. They are the chosen bride of Christ whom God determined before the foundation of the world to give himself for. What an incredible truth. There's a 19th century hymn by Samuel Stone that beautifully describes this reality. It's called The Church is One Foundation. The Church is One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is the new creation by water and the word from heaven. He came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood. He bought her and for her life he died. This is our foundation. This truth is our foundation. John writes to the elect lady and her children. This is the past reality of the church. It's true for those in the Ephesian church in the first century. And brothers and sisters, it's true for us today in the 21st century. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are among the elect that John writes about here. Paul articulates this past reality in Ephesians 1. God has blessed us in Christ Jesus by choosing us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1 verse 3, glory be to God. But John then moves right into the present reality of truth. This church is loved. They're elect and they're loved. Because of who they are in God, they're loved by God as his elect. They are loved by John. We see that next phrase. It says, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, they're also loved by all who know the truth. Amidst their challenges and suffering, John wants his church to know they're not alone. 
They have been united with all those who have this same truth. Now, in some ways, that's what we did this morning. When we recite a confession or a creed that's historic in the Christian faith, we're joining with thousands of voices that have gone before over generation and after generation after generation. We're joining with their voices and saying, we believe the same stuff. We're in this with you. They were in this with us. We're in this with you. This is the present reality. We're not alone. We are loved. Now, this is certainly a present comfort to not be alone in a hostile world. You may have experienced something like this. It's happened to me from time to time. Out of the blue, I'll receive a text or a phone call or an email from a friend or acquaintance just to let me know that they're praying for me, that they're thinking about me. And these things, they tend to come at moments when we're feeling particularly alone or we're feeling particularly challenged. John writes because he wants them to know this present love that is rooted in truth. But this truth doesn't just look back and it doesn't just stop with the present. This truth extends into the future. Look at that next phrase. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. It will be with us forever. John writes in verse 3, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Now grace, that's undeserved favor that has been shown to us. We have been chosen in him. Mercy, that's punishment that has been withheld from us. Our sins, they've been pardoned. And that peace, that's ongoing blessing that is ours. God shows us steadfast love and faithfulness. What a gift we've received in grace, mercy, and peace. This is the truth. This is our hope. This is John defining that truth. But John doesn't stop there. He goes on, grace, mercy, and peace, they will be with us. Rather than extending a wish for his readers like Paul will do, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul will often write, John tells them what will surely be, what is, what will surely be. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. These three words, they sound common to us, I think, in our, in our uh, 21st century Christianity, but John doesn't use them much at all. If you read through all of his writings, his gospel and his letters, grace, that word grace, only appears seven times. Mercy, this is the only place it appears. Peace, it appears nine times, most of those said by Jesus. John chooses to put them all right here. Second John, grace, mercy, and peace are from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son in truth and love. There's only one way we can receive these rich blessings, this grace, this mercy, this peace, and it's from the Father's hand through the Son's work, through his life, his death, his resurrection, all done in truth and love. Truth and love. This is sure and this is good. John continues in verse 4, he writes, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. The word John uses that he rejoiced greatly is like the most enthusiastic thing he could have said, the most enthusiastic expression he could use. He is overjoyed at their obedience, at their walking in truth. I want you to feel some of John's heart of affection for this church, his love for them because of God's love for them. So he encourages them with truth. He loves them in truth. He is overjoyed because they walk in truth. Now John turns to dig deeper into what it looks like to live in truth, to abide in it, to walk in it. And John loves this congregation very deeply, but he's also concerned for them. So he wants to define truth and encourage them. He also wants them to live in truth. One commentator describes John as 
a human being with affections and a pastoral guardian with convictions. A human being with affections and a pastoral guardian with convictions. I love that, that phrase. Because this is exactly who Larry and I want to be as your pastors. We want to be men with deep and evident love for you, coupled with a zealous commitment to proclaim and protect truth, the truth found in God's Word. Because this truth defined as grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and His Son is our foundation, we must walk in it. And this is John's focus as we move to the next nine verses in our second point. Number two, truth lived. Truth lived. So we looked at truth defined, now truth lived. Now as we made our way through 1 John, we came across these three tests that we talked about a lot. John gives us three tests so that we know who we are. If you remember them, the first one was a, a doctrinal test. Do you believe that God is who he says he is? It's a test of doctrine. The second one was a, a moral test. Do you obey the commands of God? And the third one, which we looked at several times, was this test of relationships, this social test. Do you love the people of God? And just over the next seven verses, these brief seven verses, John goes on to emphasize each one of these three categories. He reminds them of their importance. He begins in verses five and six. This is what walking in truth looks like related to our relationships and our obedience. John writes in verse five, and now I ask you, dear lady, Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Once again, John isn't saying anything new here. This is the message the church has always heard. This is the message that Jesus has given. We know this to be true. They know this to be true. We must love one another. But this call, it's interrelated to the moral test. I don't know if you saw that. It's related to our call to obedience In fact, we love one another because this is what it looks like to obey. Look at verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Our commitment to obeying the commands of God, to following his word, is the most loving thing we can do. You're familiar with what Jesus said was the greatest commandment when he was asked. He said the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with everything in you. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. God commands us to love, so we must love. But think about how this alters every relationship that we have. When those around you let you down, you love them. When those around you sin against you or criticize you, we are to love them. Christian love, love in the church, it's not rooted in feeling or driven by emotion. It's not determined by circumstances or by uh, compatibility or common interest. We love because God loved us. We love because God tells us to love. This is what it looks like to walk in truth. This is truth lived out. We love one another. This is the fundamental expression of living in truth. Truth and love. John bring these things, brings these things together. They're not in any way opposed to one another. We are called to truth, walk in truth by loving one another. But John goes on from there, and these next verses get at the urgency in John's writing. This is why he had to write. Beginning in verse 7, John highlights the opposite of those who walk by truth. Those who are deceivers, they walk according to lies. He writes in verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Just like Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out into the world, so these deceivers have been commissioned to go out into the world and spread lies. 
And what makes them deceivers? John continues, he tells us, the deceivers are those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. John doesn't pick these people out because he has an axe to grind with them. These are, these are the people that have divided the church. They're seeking to dismantle the church. He's not playing some kind of political game in pointing them out. He's not trying to get a one-up on those who are against him. No, John's primary concern is the love, the truth, and joy that should typify the Christian's life. For us to live in the good of what we have, to walk in the grace, the mercy, the peace that God has given us, we must walk according to this truth. We must place our hope in a certain type of Savior. Without the Jesus the Bible sets forth for us, we cannot have God. John is saying that there are those who do not confess Christ as incarnate, as the God-man. Notice that it's not those who deny this truth that are the deceivers, although they certainly are deceivers. It's not just those who deny it. It's those who don't confess it. They don't openly acknowledging it, openly acknowledge it. It's those who would rather not acknowledge that Jesus Christ, totally God and totally man, came in the flesh. One commentator writes, he says, a non-incarnate Christ, a Christ who didn't come in, in human form, is not the true Christ. Anything short of the true Christ will not be able to deliver on the gospel's promises, either in this life or the next. In other words, if Jesus didn't come as both God and man, Jesus isn't good for anybody. Jesus can't save us if he's not both God and man. If Jesus, the one who came to die for our sins, if he was not fully human, then his sacrifice would have been far less costly. And if Jesus was not fully God, his death would have been far less important. We need a Savior, Jesus Christ, who was both divine and human, God and man. This is the truth that we must hold to. This is the truth that we must live by. Now next, John moves to a more explicit exhortation. In verse 8, we must watch yourselves. Watch ourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. We must keep watch. We must stay on guard against these lies, against this opposition to the truth. The reason John gives here is, is an interesting one. It's not that we watch so that we don't lose our salvation. No, that's a free gift secure in Christ. He will hold us fast. It's that we watch ourselves so we don't lose the reward we receive for our faithful service. Part of that reward we get to taste of now. It's the joy of salvation that we experience. It's the grace, mercy, and peace that's already ours. But right now, we only know it in part. Someday soon, those things will be fully ours. We will know them in full. The call to us as Christians is that we keep watch of deceivers, but even more so that we keep watch of our own hearts, our own lives, that we look after ourselves in order to continue walking in truth. Now, in order to walk in truth, we must know truth. We must be faithful students of truth. How must we study truth? Well, John tells us explicitly how not to study truth first in verse 9. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now, it's likely that John here was using the vocabulary that the false teachers were using. He was taking the message of the heretics. They were promising something more. Do you want to take your spiritual life to the next level? Do you know what you've been missing out on? We're here to tell you. We've got something better. John mocks their claim to go on ahead of the apostolic teaching. John is saying that these false teachers, they've certainly gone on ahead, but they left God behind. The truth is not something that needs innovation. The truth that the Christian needs has already been revealed in the very word of God. 
2 Timothy 3.17 tells us that in the Word of God, we have everything we need to be complete, equipped for every good work. We don't need to innovate. We don't need to come up with something new. We've got it right here, and we get to open it up every day, every week. We live in a day that is not all that different from John's day. People want God. Many people want God. And many people want the blessing of a relationship with him. But they don't want Jesus Christ. This looks like accepting any religious path as the path to God. You know, if you're just good enough, you'll go to heaven. You'll be all right. We must oppose this thinking. Jesus says, these are Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's the opposite of love to allow people who are dead in their sin to think they'll get to God if they just try hard enough to be a good person. That's hate. You may have heard several years back when a famous magician and outspoken atheist, Penn Jillette, said this about evangelism. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would be, make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's from the, word, the mouth of an atheist. So brothers and sisters, just to encourage you to walk in truth, proclaim that truth. Love those around you by proclaiming that truth. There's only one way to eternal life, and that's through Jesus Christ. There's, there's no other path. There's no other way. We can't innovate our way to a more socially acceptable form of the gospel. There's a lot of cultural pressure to do this. Well, you know what? If we just leave out this part, it's less awkward. And less people are going to think we're bigots or less people are going to think that uh, we hate them or whatever it is. That's not the way to God. There's no way to God but through Jesus. There's only one gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. One commentator, Robert Yarborough, he says this, Doubtless, there is still today unwise and destructive divergence from biblical and historic Christian faith and practice to be observed in many quarters. But it also happened right under John's nose, within living memory of Christ's coming. It's unlikely that we have to look far beyond our own circles, if indeed our own souls are spared, to spot analogies today. The challenge then is to follow John's apostolic lead of discerning decline, of admonishing and encouraging and serving the faithful, and of continually recovering, abiding in the truth, faith, love, mercy, peace, grace, and full range of other benefits and commands mediated by God's word in Christ. You know, when we are confronted in the New Testament with, with these ideas of false teachers and um, other gospels, heresies that are spread, it's a lot easier and more comfortable to just kind of think of them as like something that happened in the past or something that's really far away from us. But brothers and sisters, this is a propensity for us all. One, one, uh, one man said probably 400 years ago, he said, if we could erase the memory of all heresies ever, we would be just as susceptible to them now as we were then. Because the problem is in our hearts. Our problem are that we are, we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, as Robert Robertson said. Brothers and sisters, if we want to be able to spot the forgeries, then we have to give ourselves to studying the real thing. 
That's the only way you can know no counterfeit. You look at the real thing. You don't spend all your time looking at, oh, this is a fake one, this is a fake one, this is a fake one. You look at what's real, what's real, what's real. This is what marks what's real, what's truly true. And you study that, you know that. And then when you see what's not, you know it's a forgery, it's a fake. This is why Larry and I will never stop encouraging you to be giving yourselves to the Word of God, to be reading the Bible, to be meditating on this truth day after day. We're grateful that we do have a church like this, and we want to continue to have a church like this. It's full of Bereans, people who know God's Word and and listen to what's being preached Sunday after Sunday and are comparing it to what's in God's Word, comparing it to truth, keeping Larry and I in line as we keep everybody walking according to truth, living according to truth, day after day after day. Psalm 1 tells us that blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. Church, we want you to be blessed. We want you to experience that grace, mercy, and peace that is yours in Jesus. This is why we read creeds together as a church. This is why we have Sunday classes, why we give away theological books, if we can figure out a way to give them away effectively. We give away books so that we might know the truth that unites us more and more. Because we're in this together. Church, our love and unity is not built on common interests. It's not because we all wanted to come hang out. We needed somewhere to hang out on a Sunday morning at 1030. And so the middle school in the neighborhood was the closest place. That's not why we're here. Our, Our love and unity is rooted in the truths that we believe. We must know these truths. But our call is not just to know these truths. Our call is to protect these truths. Look at verses 10 and 11. John writes this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, given all that the New Testament has to say about hospitality and all that John in particular has to say about loving one another, even in this letter, this seems maybe a bit over the top, right? Do not receive him. Do not greet him. If you greet him, you're a participant in his wicked works. Now, how is what John says in 10 and 11 compatible with his call to love? Now, in order to make sense of this warning, it's helpful to keep a few things in mind. First, John is talking about false teachers, not false believers. He's talking about those who are going out and speaking not truth intentionally, spreading lies, not just people who happen to believe these things. That's the first thing to keep in mind. Second thing to keep in mind, John is addressing a church, not a home. He's writing to the elect lady, this congregation. So he's speaking to a church. So don't give them a platform in your church. Don't give false teachers a platform in your church. John is speaking of those, thirdly, he's speaking of those that deny that Jesus is God. He's not speaking about those who just happen to disagree with you on a tertiary theological issue. It's core, core reality that people deny. The Nicene Creed, what we read this morning, that's kind of a historic confession of the Christian faith. And if somebody's denying truths that are contained therein, which reflect scriptural truths, they're a false teacher. Do not greet him. Do not give him a platform. Do not bring him into your home. So John is saying, do not validate false teachers by giving them a platform, by acknowledging their message. They're opposed to God. Now, this may still seem pretty harsh, unkind, incompatible with with a God who is love. Now, if that's you, John Stott writes these wise words. He says this, If John's instruction still seems harsh, it's probably because his concern for the glory of the Son and the good of human souls is greater than ours, and because the tolerance on which we pride ourselves is in reality an indifference to truth. The tolerance on which we pride ourselves is in reality an indifference to truth. Now, if you don't think you're susceptible to that today, 
take a second look. The tolerance on which we pride ourselves is in reality an indifference to truth. This is the, the cultural waters we swim in. Christian love is not blind love. Christian love is rooted love. It's rooted in who God is and what he has said and done. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we, cross, we come across a passage that is in some ways like John's here. In Titus 3, Paul tells Titus to exhort the church to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Then just a few verses later in verse 10, so that was verse 2, verse 10, same chapter, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Love in the church protects truth because it is the true gospel that is the path to salvation. Christian love should never accept one man even as he does destructive harm to others. We shouldn't accept one man because even as he does destructive harm to others. Those who stir up division, those who are deceivers, these are enemies of God and enemies of the church. Our commitment to you as pastors is to protect you, to protect this pulpit from false teachers. We want to do all we can to guard this pulpit so that we might be a bright beacon shining forth the truth about Jesus, the light of the world. So, like next week when Matt Hall comes, he's never been to this church, you don't know him. The reason we're having him come is because we're sure where he stands on these things. We, don't, we are not going to give a platform to anyone. And if we do, oppose us, who is a false teacher denying these truths. Now, John has one more thing that highlights what truth lived out looks like, and it's seen in his own example. In his final greetings, John says this. He says, verse 12, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. It's this little phrase that our joy may be complete. That's really remarkable. John is saying that it is in the gathering of God's people together that we can experience complete joy. It's in being face to face. You may have heard the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, this is entirely true. But as Christians, we must understand that our joy doesn't end just with joy with God, joy in God. It is made complete in the fellowship we share with God's people. One thing my wife, we've talked about in the past as we've come away from gatherings with the church is how we, maybe we weren't looking forward to it that much going into it, but coming away, it was so rich and we are so full. It is good to gather with the people of God. Church, this is why for us as pastors, we're jealous that you come every week, that you make a priority to gather week after week. This is why it's painful when people aren't present. Your joy, our joy can't be complete apart from gathering together with God's people. So this morning through Jesus Christ, we have been, we've been reconciled to God and we've been reconciled to one another. We have a new identity as his children, a new family that we gather with to experience the joy of our salvation as we celebrate the gospel truth that has brought us from death to life. Brothers and sisters, we as Christians, we're never called to go beyond this great gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world. Fully God to live a righteous, holy life and fully man to be our substitute. He came into this world to save sinners. He gives us access to the Father. Now, we don't move past this gospel. We abide in it. We remain in it. We live in it. This message of God's love for us through Jesus Christ is our life. May we be faithful to stay focused on this truth. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank you.
for the reality of God made flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, that we might be reconciled to God and saved from hell and damnation. Jesus, you are our hope. And Lord, may you keep us. May our eyes be fixed on you. In every situation we face, uh, Lord, may we not wander. May we keep ourselves, keep watch over our own, our own souls. May we find life in you and in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.